So hi folks, Dave here. Before we start the show, I wanted to let you know that we've teamed up with audible.co.uk and we're offering you a free audiobook. All you have to do is register for a one month free trial to claim your free audiobook, of which there are over 250,000 to choose from. It's a 30 day free trial. It means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel that trial period or not. Free piece of advice, if you're gonna try an audiobook, go for Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods. Anyway, sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash tech talks. Back to the show. You are listening to Tech Talks, the technology podcast that is out every Monday and Thursday for the love of tech. And it's with David Savage and Jack Pierce. On today's show, we're talking all about Microsoft as their device manager for Europe, Nicole Dezen, joins the show. Uh, and also joining us to have a little bit of a conversation about that and how data might not be the new oil, but perhaps the new fur, is Jesse Bello-Perez, the editor of UK Tech News. And uh, Cheryl Rizel from HSBC joins me for a small plug of an event coming up that you might be interested in going along to. So on today's show, it's not just myself and Jack. We're also joined by Jesse Bello Perez on the line, uh, who who is the editor of UK Technology News, and is kindly given a bit of time because you're on holiday from tomorrow, right? That's right. Yep. Is the holiday your wedding, or is it just a holiday? Oh gosh, no. The wedding's not until um, May next year. So no, this ah. is just an actual an actual holiday. Right, fine. Because I, I did notice on your Twitter feed that every now and then there are there are comments about wedding dresses. Say yes to the dress, etc. So <laughs> I've seen this yes. and, and smirk every time. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I am. I am a little bit annoying. Yes, that's true. No, oh, it's, no. It's, I wouldn't say that. I mean, my wife watches say yes to the dress every single day and we got married two and a half years ago which leads to her to my parents-in-law thinking that she's depressed <laughs> oh i have to say though like i i genuinely watch it quite i used to watch it even before like the whole uh, wedding thing came up but it's really embarrassing i cry every time oh uh, well here's a, here's a yeah. question then for the initiated monty or randy oh that's really hard actually I think I'm going to go with Monty. Are these two of the hosts on the So program? So Randy is like the male uh, fashion designer from uh, the name of the store in New York that now escapes me, Kleinfelds. Right. And Monty is the uh, male assistant to Laurie, uh, Brides by Laurie, which is Say Yes to the Dress uh, in the South. And I can't remember what that one's called. Dave, are you sure it's your wife that Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dave, Dave's just about to recommend it to me, I think. Jack, you need to see this programme. <laughs> Don't give Rosie any ideas. <laughs> anyway, uh, so on today's show, we've got Nicole Dezen. Uh, Nicole is General Manager, Consumer and Device Sales for UK and Ireland at Microsoft. But uh, stick with us as we go through the show, because later on we will have a news article, and that is taken from UKTN. No guessing who's chosen the article today. <laughs> I, I hope that she can guide us through it. No, but that's that's all about uh, data, so worth t- staying tuned for. But first of all, we have the interview with Nicole. So today we're joined by Nicole from Microsoft. Nicole, what is your job? Probably best to make sure that you, you describe your job title and I, I don't make a hash of it. Sure. So I lead the consumer and devices business for Mm -hmm. Microsoft in the UK and Ireland. What that means is 
Uh, I am responsible for our consumer products. So that's Windows, Office, Surface, and Xbox. Mm -hmm. My team works with all of the retailers in the UK and Ireland where you would go buy those products yeah. for yourself or for your family. And we also work with the device manufacturers, OEMs, PC manufacturers that make PCs that you would buy for yourself or for your family. We all, they also make devices for students mm. and educational institutions as well as for businesses. It must be quite a fun role because you've got B2B, B2B to C, B2C, all sorts of demographics. You've got gamers, you've got people who work. That must make it quite interesting, but at the same time, quite complex. I love it. It's never the same day twice. What, what got you into this role? Because you've been at Microsoft in a couple of other roles before yeah. this role. How did you find yourself taking this particular path? So I've been with Microsoft for 11 years. Mm. I actually started in our enterprise business um, in California. Yeah. And then I moved to Redmond, to our corporate headquarters, and I had a series of roles working with our uh, PC manufacturer partners. Some in Redmond, I spent some time in Asia managing some business there. And then I came back to Redmond, and actually I was having a career conversation with my manager about how I can develop in, in the next stage of my career and, and what opportunities are available to me. And we got onto the subject of this role that was available in the UK and Ireland, and here I am. Have you seen a difference between the culture in the US and the UK? Because an organization the size of Microsoft, right, it must be very hard to have one culture for the whole business anyway, and it'll be evolving at different rates in different parts of the world. Yeah, that's so true. We, we definitely have a sort of broad corporate culture, mm -hmm. but then every country, every city, even every team has its own unique dynamics and culture within it, which I think makes it really special. And coming from the enterprise business, I suppose now you're in a, in a different kind of business, so that must impact the culture itself as well. Definitely. Um, the part of the business that I'm in, particularly the consumer sales, um, it's very fast paced. We, we look at the business every single day. I mean, I've, I've noticed a difference in the industry that I've worked in over the past five years because companies themselves have evolved around it, so that forces you to change your culture. I suppose as tech has gotten bigger, it's more in the limelight. You know, you've gone from a case where oh, petro companies were the biggest companies in the world, now tech companies are the biggest companies in the world. They're in the spotlight. Has that had an impact as well? Kind of external pressure, a little bit more of a, of a spotlight on the business and, and what it does? Yeah, I think there's a lot of awareness to the fact that we are looked at. We're one of the largest companies on the planet. Mm. I think we have a real sense of responsibility because of that. Yeah. I also think a lot of it has been driven by Satya Nadella, our CEO, and, and his call to action to the company and to our employees about what we stand for. And I suppose it's interesting because Microsoft is kind of, it was the big technology company. And... If you look at the market now, you'd probably argue that Amazon, Google, and, and Apple are the, are the three that most people would immediately think of. And then Microsoft's there because it's just everywhere. But it's almost, I suppose it's almost taken on an idea that it could almost be a utility. It's just hmm. everyone uses its platforms. The games are there, but you probably don't necessarily think of Microsoft. Does that, does that present a challenge in terms of asking who are we? How do we position ourselves? We definitely have some amazing competition. And, and I actually think that's really healthy for Microsoft. I think you hit the nail on the head. Microsoft has a breadth and depth mm. that other companies don't. So people use Windows, 
people use Office, and, and it's just sort of natural to how they use computing devices. And of mm. course, those are Microsoft products. And you know, when you think about gaming, people use Xbox. How do you innovate in a business that large? Is it pockets? Is it people kind of guiding people through the labyrinth of an organization that size? How, how does it actually work? I actually think there's a lot of different kinds of innovation at Microsoft. When I think about innovation and Microsoft, the first thing I sort of think about is technology and mm. engineering. And we have amazing evolution and innovation happening there with new tech coming all the time, things like AI and Internet of Things. Um, but actually, the, the innovation that I get really excited about in the company is our cultural innovation, mm -hmm. the things that we're doing to to be relevant to employees, to be relevant to our customers and our partners, and how do we think and behave differently. Um, in the company, we talk a lot about this concept of growth mindset. There's, a, there's an amazing book called Mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck. And she talks about the fact that you want to think about what you don't know yet. Mm. Um, and it, talking about things that way has actually really helped us behave differently. We went from being this sort of know-it-all culture and being proud of being the smartest people in the room yep. to being more of a learn-it-all culture and being much more curious and wanting to know more. And I think that's actually one of the things that has enabled us to just change the way that we function, change the way that we work together, and, and frankly, change the way we recruit talent. And you talk about relevance. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the world is a wonderfully diverse place, but the technology industry has about 13% participation of, of females in, in technology roles. And then I don't even know what the stats are on some of the other kind of the, the, the minority groups. Do you think Microsoft does a good job of promoting diversity and inclusion across the organization by comparison to maybe some of its peers? And what do you think could be done to actually impact some of those stats that unfortunately haven't really changed over the last five years? It's a really good question, and it's something that's really high on our agenda. We don't have enough female representation. Mm -hmm. I think the day that we have enough female representation is when we no longer have to measure it and go, oh, are, how are we doing? Yeah. Um, that'll be success for me. Um, so it is really, really important to us. Um, I think there's a number of things happening across the company at all levels, starting with guidance from our CEO mm -hmm. that each Every single employee in the company will take a commitment this year around what that individual does to drive diversity and inclusion. Um, but with respect to female talent, it's things like, how do we change our job descriptions yep. to be more appealing to diverse talent? Um, how do we speak to females in a different way? How do we look for female talent in different places? But then once you recruit talent, and any kind of diverse talent, I think we have to do a great job of making sure that that talent feels included. Mm. Otherwise, they leave. Out of interest, as a, as a female leader, how did you find your route into technology? I sort of stumbled into it. Yeah. Um, gosh, so I, uh, I started working right after I graduated from university, mm -hmm. and I started in sales. So what did you study out of interest? Social sciences, so right. not tech, <laughs> not STEM. Um, and I went into sales because I didn't actually know what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, some friends told me that I could use my personality and ability to influence to, to have a career. That seemed good. 
Um, and I started in the US in the telecom industry. And I sort of worked my way up. Mm -hmm. I sold long distance service to businesses. Then I sold data networks. And then I sold global data networks. And I wound up in a startup in uh, the early 2000s. It was wow. the dot-com boom in the US. And suddenly, I was heavy, heavy in tech. Um, and actually, it was this combination of tech and media and entertainment because we served the media and entertainment industry. Um, and just through my career, I've found that I really love tech because I think it helps people. Mm -hmm. um, I think it solves problems for people. And when it just becomes a natural part of your life, I think it's pretty magical. Do you think that people understand that? I mean, one of the problems, I suppose, with education is, and I say this with the greatest of respect to teachers, my mum was a teacher, but they spend their entire lives in academia, not in enterprise. My parents, the corporate world was an absolute alien concept to them. So therefore, the people who are educating the next generation of technologists coming through and those who are going to stumble into it haven't really worked in these jobs themselves. So do they... Do they give people that sense of how technology can impact various different industries? Or is that going to happen naturally as just tech, technology becomes more ubiquitous and built into everything that we do anyway? So my mom was a teacher too. Right. I can relate. Um, I actually think it's one of the responsibilities we have in technology to enable teachers to give their students digital skills. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it necessarily has to be about a teacher understanding everything about tech but I think it's about how we democratize technology and make it easy and available for people. So that is, it's just a natural extension of your life. And then of course, those students that are hungry to learn more, we can get very STEM focused with them. Now Microsoft is huge and you've obviously been very successful there, but how do you attribute that success? How, how do you think you got noticed and how did you build those relationships internally that helped you build your career? Wow, that's a good question. I, I, I think part of it is just being authentic. Right. I think that I'm passionate about what I do, and I think my passion comes through in everything I do. And I think that's part of what has helped me accelerate in my career because I've been really clear about what I want, <clears throat> clear about what's important to me and then I want to go after it. And I've been incredibly fortunate to have amazing mentors, managers, coaches that give me some guidance along mm -hmm. the way. Um, and then I've, I've really leaned into it. Is that something that you've been able to do yourself as well, kind of mentor other people at a junior stage in the organization? Yeah, I feel a huge responsibility to do that. I think that to me, first of all, it's part of giving back. I've been really blessed to have benefited from that in my career, and I feel mm. that responsibility to pay it forward. But I think even more importantly, I find it really inspiring, particularly when I'm talking to talent that's earlier in their career and hearing what excites them and what motivates them and what questions they have and, and being able to share with them just some of my experiences and maybe some of the landmines I stepped on that yeah. I could help them avoid. I, I think that's just so exciting. Well, look, to just bring this to a close then, if you were talking to someone in any organization who's enthusiastic about the idea of a career in technology, but they do find it quite confusing. What would be the one piece of advice that you would try and give to them if you could? I think it would be to find that thing that interests you and just pursue that. To, to pursue a career in tech, you don't have to know everything about tech. 
You just have to find that one thing that interests you. It could be STEM related. Mm. It could also be sales, marketing, finance. We have entire organizations around that in Microsoft. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for giving up some time. And uh, Microsoft seems to be becoming this kind of cool brand again, innovating and gaming and whatnot. So I hope that continues to go well. I'm sure it will do so under your guidance, but it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. My pleasure. So, Jesse, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you first of all, were there, what points in that interview resonated in particular? Um, I think Nicole had some very interesting points about how Microsoft has changed as a company over time and, you know, how there's increased competition and market with regards to the likes of Facebook, Amazon and Google and whatnot. But I think what really, really resonated to me was everything that she said around culture um, and how to make sure that employees feel valued within an organization mm -hmm. and that you therefore have the right things in place to help them grow and develop professionally. Um, and for a company the size of Microsoft, I can imagine that that comes with a whole set of um, challenges that perhaps startups don't necessarily think about when they first set out to fulfill their mission. But I do genuinely believe that it's something that needs to be in the founders or C-level suite um, mind uh, from day one. 100%. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about um, our, our business here and I often think that the people in London, because it's the headquarters, must get a very different experience to, say, someone who's working in an office in Germany or, or Scandinavia because to them the idea that they might know the CEO or the FD would be a totally alien concept, whereas we, we are lucky in, in headquarters to see those senior people and feel that whilst we work for a big a big global organization it's actually quite family orientated too and and when you put that onto the scale of, of something the size of microsoft it must be a nightmare and i guess geography itself plays such a such a big role in that i mean yeah. for me the, the the cultural issue uh, not issue sorry cultural point that nicole made almost accidentally i mean she starts the interview by saying she's been 11 years at microsoft and her her journey there began with sitting down with her manager and having a casual discussion around progressing in the way she wanted to progress and then right at the end of the interview she talks about how she's lent into mentorship because she feels responsible to mentor others and that is exactly what happened with her 11 years ago. And mm. that sort of senior mentorship cultural program that Microsoft seemed to have helps you, you know, if, if, you're, if your MD is based in New York, but you're sat in Texas or whatever, yeah. it helps you still feel part of that bigger, wider family with, you know, a senior stakeholder buying into your journey. And I think if a, co if a company as big as Microsoft are implementing that, you know, across the board, then, yeah, like Jesse was saying, it, startups need to look at that sort of similar kind of family orientation, arm round the shoulder, kind uh, of Harry Redknapp style of management. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jess, you obviously get to go and, and, and talk to a lot of, of large enterprise businesses. Uh, listening to what Nicole says, are, th are there good examples where you, or best practices rather where people do manage to break down uh, that, that, that scale problem, I suppose, and ensure that people do feel bought in and how do they do that? So I think for me, the very the difficulty is that I think culture is something that gets talked about quite often in like this day and age, and it's definitely something that I feel has become quite trendy to discuss at like panel events, and you know we get quite a lot of articles pitched into UKTN about people wanting to write about company culture and what they're doing right within the organisation, but also what they've learned in terms of what they've done wrong. Mm -hmm. I think the real difficulty 
years, ultimately really, um, when you talk to people, really knowing what has been effective and why, why, what the motivations behind what they're doing are. So um, I think, you know, obviously it's a completely different topic, but you could even argue that diversity and inclusion falls into company culture. Um, and I think it's great to be able to, to talk about that, that kind of thing, um, especially in today's marketplace. But the difficulty is actually knowing what really has been implemented and whether it's working. And I think for me, the more I talk to people, the more I actually personally realize that the great thing about company culture is to ha- be open and transparent, but also kind of for people within companies to realize, well, this isn't working. And this is why we think it's not working. Mm. So let's actually iterate and figure out ways to improve um, the way that we work with people and interact with people on a like almost like live basis. I think you do have to have certain things and missions and principles set in stone, but I think it's very important to be flexible in that approach as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think um, th- th- there's a lot of talk there about internal culture at Microsoft and what they're doing right and how it's led from the CEO down. Um, but Nicole kind of touched on like an external culture with regards to education and the responsibility that companies like Microsoft should have in influencing the education sector. You know, mm. she talks about sure. it's, the, it's the tech industry's responsibility to supply and enable teachers to teach digital skills, to then democratize tech, make it available at an early age to those people who have sort of a STEM interest. And then when they get hungry to learn that, that's when, you know, college and, and university, you really drive that mm-hmm. home. For me, that sounded like an external culture point of view, which we don't really talk about that much. But when you've got a responsibility and a burden like Microsoft do, you know, everyone's probably got a Microsoft product or operating system or something. Whether they want it or not. Whether they want it or not, exactly, yeah. I mean, I very much love my Xbox, so I, that's the kind hey, of system I, I'm, I want. I'm a big fan of Skype. I don't know about 365 yet. but yeah. no, 365's good, Dave. We, we've just had 365 rolled out here at Harvey Nash. <laughs> I, I've been enjoying it for about a year now, but I think you guys are just coming. We were on. getting it this week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's going to be good. But I mean, that whole idea of external culture from the big guys, I think, will help everything from sourcing all the way to you know leadership potential and stuff yeah. like that. So the, one of the one of the bits that I I really loved listening to her talk about, and again, it's cultural, but it has a lot to do with innovation and a lot of people roll their eyes when people start talking about innovation mm. these days but uh, she talks about the growth mindset yep. and cultural uh, you know culturally being relevant to their customers and partners I love the point that she made that you know we used to think that we were the smartest people in the room but now we're we're more curious so they've kind of gone from a know-it-all culture to a learn-it-all culture and I thought that was a really insightful point totally I think It's so smart because ultimately that's how you're going to get most value out of every single employee. And I feel like I'm very fortunate, you know, being a journalist, my job entails a lot of like being out there, meeting people, talking to people. And sometimes you you meet someone for coffee and you end up, you know, having a two hour long conversation. And I realized that in in some people's jobs, that is actually perceived as a luxury. Um, Mm. So I think just kind of like... um, making people aware of the fact that they should be curious and they should be eager to learn and then there's kind of this um like safe environment that they can feel that they can ask questions and they can constantly look at better ways of doing things it's really really valuable and you know you and i have spoken about this dave a few times we don't i don't feel like most people in this day and age are just motivated solely by by money if you go and look for a job you want to make sure that you work somewhere where you believe in what the company is trying to achieve and you know that that particular role um gives you a lot of like professional development opportunities 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it'd be very easy for an organization like Microsoft to say, well, we are this you know, big company that's got all these wonderful products and we've got all these great minds who work for us. And and that would be a shame because if you joined it and you wanted to learn, it would shut off routes to partnering with innovative um, startups that, that might change your business and your understanding of technology for the better. Sure. Any further points from anyone? I, I, I just want one kind of point that, that Jesse uh, called on earlier, you know, the fact that they love the competition and they see it as being healthy for them. You know, they like you yeah. say, they were at one point or they thought at one point they were the smartest in the room and now, you know, Facebook, Google and Amazon are much stronger than they are and, and you know Google are putting out products like Microsoft do and, and so on and so forth it's, well it's interesting isn't it when, we, when everyone was discussing who was going to be the first trillion dollar organisation it was Apple Amazon Alphabet yeah. and obviously Apple got there Amazon just followed I can't remember anyone saying Microsoft yeah yeah and you know you do kind of wonder why because a company with their gravitas and you know we all know who Bill Gates is and he's one of the modern sort of aficionados of our time it's it, yeah um, but I feel as though to have that uh, I don't know what the word is have that sort of kindness for competition that mm. acceptance it's going to make them learn grow faster better harder stronger for not wanting to quote Kanye West <laughs> <laughs> you certainly did that on purpose <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Well, look, uh, on that point, then, we will go to our advert break. But do stay tuned. Uh, Jesse is staying with us because we are talking about an article on data from UK Tech News. Uh, so plenty to listen to. So I'm sitting with Cheryl, uh, who I've known for nearly a decade, or possibly over a decade. And what's your role now within HSBC? So I run a global operations team that looks after um, our platform, that yep. looks after our digital customers. So yep. it's a new microservices API environment mm -hmm. that hosts all our new web and mobile applications for HSBC globally for the retail, wealth and banking sector. And the reason that I've popped down on a Friday afternoon to have a coffee with you is because you're running an event. I am. In, well, very soon in about a week and a half right two weeks yeah so the 16th of october yeah i'm hosting an event in london where um so down in moorgate at Codenode. and what's it about i felt very inspired some by a lot of women in tech events that i've been to but they all seem to run kind of the same format where they talk about youngsters and graduates and you know grads getting into stem um subjects um, and i was looking to diff for a different take because i feel that it's kind of more organic for our, the younger generation to get into technology roles. So I think there's a lot of untapped potential with people that are working in different array of organizations that have really valuable skills that they can apply to a technology company mm -hmm. or a technology role. Um, and I get asked so many times, how do you get into tech? Like, how did you get a job in tech? I had a very different background. I came from a gym instructor initially and kind of I worked my way by my curiosity in technology into a technology role. Um, I don't kind of have any formal qualifications to back that up. Um, I've had my many years of experience to get myself into my technology role. Um, so I started to explore this subject and talking to many people. And actually, I found a lot of people that work in technology. They say they accidentally fell into technology. So everyone's got a story to tell of how they got into a technology role. Because I don't think anybody wakes up and says, you know what, I'm going to go and study a computer um, science degree and I want to get into computing or, or into a tech role. So I decided to um, go and bring in... Uh, 
kind of a different angle. And that's kind of where the idea and the premise of the... the what the, is that angle? So it's called un Unconventional Paths. Yep. I want to inspire people that are working outside of technical industry and the technology industry um, to come into technology. And I want to give them the tools and the inspiration to do that. So we've got uh, Jessica Lee Jones. Now, Jessica Lee Jones, um, actually one of, my, one of my friends spotted her at a Women in Tech event recently where she spoke amazingly on kind of DevOps and her journey of how she got into DevOps. She was charismatic, she was funny, uh, and she was engaging and very inspirational. So we've asked her to come along and speak on at our event and kind of work together with us to, to inspire people in the audience to actually, do you know what, I could do that, that could be me. Um, so I'll be comparing the evening and kind of introducing all the keynotes. I've organized the event. Um, and then we move on to kind of the panel. So we're, we're looking to put somebody on stage who can inspire everybody and kind of talk about yeah. her background and how she got into her role. It's your first, it's your first event, rather. Yes. So people should come along and support. Yes, please do. That would be fantastic because I'm super nervous. I've never run an event at this scale. Yeah. Um, I've helped other people organize their own events, but I'm absolutely petrified. But I'm really also really excited. And you've got Gemma Lloyd because you heard her on the podcast. I did indeed. Just so to, I... you know, give ourselves a plug halfway through our own show. But... <laughs> so I actually, I saw it on your LinkedIn. Um, so um, what I... do you mean you didn't actually listen? No, I saw you on LinkedIn <laughs> and then I went on to follow. Right. Um, and then I listened to Gemma's uh, podcast and, yep. and I was inspired by what she was doing. Mm. And uh, so I went on to have a look at uh, Gemma's profile, took a look into what she was doing, realized that there was some synergy there because she's doing some work with HSPC. So literally sent her an email um, titled Great Minds. So it's a code node. It's on the 16th of October. The event link is on uh, Eventbrite. Eventbrite, yep. Okay. Uh, we will share that in the show notes yep. so that people can find it and sign up. Uh, what time of the day is it? It's an evening event? Evening event, yeah. Cool. So there's no excuse. And for anyone who is interested in helping a more diverse workforce within technology, be they male or female, yep. come along and listen to the stories of the panel. I'm sure that you will have some good questions lined up from your own experience. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Tech Talks. It is time for the news. And as we've mentioned, today's news is taken from UKTN. Uh, given that we've got the editor on the phone, I'd imagine it's one of the one of the more interesting articles on the site right now, Jesse. That's right, yeah. Nice to have actual permission to use it as well. <laughs> <laughs> Given that we just used to steal your content without telling you, yeah. Um, so the article, Forget Oil, is data the new fur? This is an article by Harry Keane, who is CEO and co-founder of Hazy. Uh, Jesse, as we've got you on the phone, it would be rather silly of us not to ask you to su summarise what the, the main thrust of this is. Sure, yeah, so... It's an article that looks at data handling and how that's become an ethical consideration, both in the wake of the General Data Protection Regulation, otherwise known as GDPR, mm -hmm. um, but also in light of the somewhat recent Facebook and Cambridge, um, Cambridge, sorry, also in light of the um, somewhat recent Facebook and Cambridge Analytica data scandal. What I mean, so so obviously everyone is familiar with the concept of fur being this all, you know fake fur rather than real fur, etc., and, and the ethical considerations that go around uh, animal trading and, and etc. What 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 does Harry say here about data? Because I mean data is something that 
fundamentally, people need an understanding of how their data is being used. You can't stop organisations having access to your data because it kind of locks you out of the modern economy that is being built. What What is the suggestion here that... The users need more control of their data. Organisations need to be more aware of and more sympathetic of how they use people's data. Organisations need um, fake blood thrown over them if they misuse our data. Oh, like, right. Like, like people do in fur protests. Yeah. Throw, <laughs> throw fake blood over the mink coat so it ruins the coat. It's kind of a bit of a redundant thing to do, but, you know, the point is still there. Is, is the emphasis here on, on the organisations improving the way that they're handling our data or on our awareness of how data is being used? I think it's both. I think it's twofold because, I mean, everyone listening to this will know that data is incredibly powerful, especially if you're an organization that's looking to generate uh, revenue and profit. Clearly, the more you know about your customers, the more, uh, well, the easier it is to target them accordingly. And that insight is actually, um, you know, it's, it's very, very powerful. Um, but I think up until a few months ago, I don't think the general population was really, really understood um, exactly how much data some of these organisations, uh, particularly in the tech um, sphere, actually hold. Mm. Um, not, but not necessarily of you know like uh, actual individuals, but as a whole, like being able to data profile your customers is, as I said, very powerful. So, what Harry's saying is, you know, this is great, but ultimately we're now at a time where we have a framework that comes from the EU, um, which doesn't hamper innovation in the sense that you're still able to hold data, um, but actually means that we can be much more transparent um, and much more accountable in terms of how that data is handled. So I think the responsibility, his argument is, falls not only on the com- like on the companies that are holding the data, but also on consumers to be aware um, of what um, data they're giving up and how may this be potentially used. Which is absolutely uh, a brilliant um, argument and point. And there's, there's, a, there's a paragraph here in the article. In, in recent months, we've seen shocking succession of data handling scandals at some of the yeah. world's largest companies. Uh, the general public appears to have woken up to the disturbing possibility that their personal data has been used for purposes far beyond what we should consider reasonable. And yet... And yet, even with that argument, we look to China and their social scoring system coming in in 2020. And wow, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, you've got companies like Alibaba. Uh, well, I think is it one of seven different private companies who are building that social scoring system. And Alibaba uh, have, have, have stated that they will be opaque about um, the uh, algorithms that determine your score and... It's widely accepted that if you buy uh, products on Alibaba, that will reflect kindly on you, which is is just wrong well, on so well. many different levels. So and I, I suppose my point here being, this is absolutely correct, and the GDPR in Europe is great, but when you've got the East and the West and companies span spanning those borders, how on earth do you regulate and make this work on a global level? Because these organisations are global. But data handling, as the article says, transcends legal or regulatory obligations, you know. It's the responsibility of those with your data. Um, Just on that Alibaba point, now, are you graded, if you will, uh, from the point of having this, this app, or are they looking at all your past data as well? I don't know. Because if if that's me, I get the Alibaba thing, I download 
all of the Just Giving apps, the the charity apps, you know, everything that's going to make me look like a truly great citizen. And then I'm at the top of the pile. I don't, I don't think that's how the algorithm in China is necessarily well, going to work. That's how you hack it to all of our Chinese listeners. <laughs> Here's some advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God, imagine, I, what, imagine how we'd be graded. I'd love for us to be put through the... the no, let's, let's not. <laughs> Technologies are fantastic. I mean, I don't want to go into the whole AI debate because no. that's something that's talked about a lot. But I think I think like the potential of the technology is often something that we all like focus on and talk about. But I think we need to talk a lot more about the ethics around it because they can, you know, all this tech, all this data has the potential to change the world. But I just will worry about, you know, are we missing the point? Because you know, change is great. But ultimately are we doing enough to kind of counteract the negative effects of what this change will bring about and i don't want to sound you know all like negative and yeah i don't want to sound like a pessimist uh because i do think you know that some of the transformational power of these technologies is fantastic Mm. but it worries me and it concerns me that some companies in the tech um, market are ultimately much more powerful than, than most governments and then i wonder whether you know how that's going to play out because the likes of Facebook probably know much more about um, citizens around the world than yeah. you know the individual governments do, and that comes with a huge amount of responsibility. And I don't think that they're being held accountable enough because yeah. ultimately, a one billion pound or one billion dollar fine. Uh, let's not kid ourselves. To hmm. Some of these companies, that's just um, spare change. It's worth it for them as well. It's worth that. I mean, fine. Look. Quasi-political point, uh, I know, and it's dangerous ground to get into, but um, whether or not you agree with all of the side effects of globalisation, you cannot turn the clock back on globalisation, and to do so is stupid. And it's similarly the same with technology. We all admit that there are elements of the technology market that have issues, but... We are building a digital world and a digital digital economy, and you have to be part of it. Yeah. So it's about taking taking the best parts and, and getting rid of the excesses, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I just this is what frustrates me about when people say, "Well, you know, I'm just going to get a old school Nokia and I'm going to pay <laughs> with everything in cash, and then I won't be tracked." Um, or the argument around, "Oh, you know, it's really upsetting to see how like self service." Um, cash machines in supermarket are taking away jobs well they're not really though because if you look back at history technology has always displaced um work and jobs but ultimately the technology that's coming into the market will hopefully uh, create more jobs so it's about upskilling the population and making people much more aware of the change that's happening around them and why that's changing i don't think we're at a point in time where any of us can be complacent to that yeah, absolutely. It goes back to that argument, you know, are we doing enough at secondary school, at primary school, to get people interested in tech? Are we, but, you know, I didn't learn about data. Or, or, or even just framing it yeah. in the right way. But, I mean, I didn't learn about data until I, I joined the business here. You know, I didn't know that my data was, I just used to thought cookies was as far as it went, you know, targeted advertising. But mm. you're not taught that from a young level, you know, especially if you're starting online, an online social media account from potentially the age of 10 or 11, mm. your whole life is going to be chronologized, not chronologized, but, you know, put together in one big bundle. And, you know, everything you've done and will do is, is logged. And 
if you're not taught from a young age how to protect yourself uh, from things like that, yeah. you're going to be at risk. Look, it's it's a really interesting article. Um, I think Harry has probably got it right when he talks about data being fur, because obviously you can tell from just this short conversation that there's all sorts of ethical angles and considerations. Maybe not ones involving fake blood, but there we go. Uh, but Jesse, I really appreciate you spending some time on the phone and joining us for this episode. No, thank you for having me. Where are you it's going? A pleasure. Um, so we're, it's a bit of a weird trip. So we fly into Lisbon on Monday, nice. spend a few days there, and then we're going to do a drive up the coast to Porto, then spend a few days in Porto, and then I'm going back home to um, northwestern Spain, which is conveniently right on top of Portugal. So yeah. <laughs> um, you can say I'm off to the Iberian Peninsula. <laughs> is that the Costa Verde region or not quite? Where I'm from in Spain? Yeah. Um, so it's a region called Galicia, um, ah. and I'm from a city called La Coruña, which for those of you who follow people, football may people. have heard of Deportivo La Coruña, yeah. it used to be quite good a few years ago. They've been relegated recently, I think, or they've been yo yo team. Jack, do you just like rubbing it in when football doesn't go well yes, for people? My football team's terrible. I'm going to bring that up, but okay, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> well, look, have a lovely time. Thanks for joining the show, uh, and we will be back on Thursday. Thank you. Brilliant.